You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Amen. Thank you, Ricky, for leading us to the table and preaching such a powerful word last Sunday, as I'll mention in a moment. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. If this is your first Sunday, we extend to you a very special welcome. Second or third Sunday, yes, we're so glad you're here. 25th or more, and no, I'm kidding. Good, good that everybody is here, that you have chosen to be here today to worship the Lord together. And I want to ask a personal question right off the bat. Before I ask that, though, I do want to mention... Please be in prayer for Steven Eisenberg. He has surgery tomorrow to remove the AVM in his brain. So we want to be praying for that surgery. And Michelle and the kids, everybody, just pray uh, especially all day tomorrow for the Eisenbergs. <clears throat> so here's the question I wish Stephen were here for because you always want to ask Stephen about trouble, you know. Have you ever gotten into trouble writing an email or a text? Anybody ever gotten into trouble? Uh, the person you were writing misunderstood something that you wrote or perceived your communication in the wrong way. You had no intention to offend, and yet somehow you accomplished the very thing that had not even entered your mind, and they're upset. Have you ever sent a handwritten letter that offended the recipient of the letter? If so, you likely intended to rile the person whom you were writing, or at least you determined to speak your mind in the letter so the reaction was not surprising. There's something about handwritten letters that focus the mind and sharpen the points and purpose of the letter, even if it appears to be rambling. You're going somewhere if you're writing a handwritten letter. We're almost to the end of our study in the Gospel of John, and the Apostle John is going to tell us why he wrote the letter. And although the Apostle John did not know you personally, unless you're a bit older than I knew, he was writing at the instruction of the Holy Spirit or under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and he knows you well. The Holy Spirit used John's personality and his experiences to communicate God's Word. That's one of the really great things about Scripture. The ultimate author is God, and yet you can see personalities, you can see uh, different thought patterns, just the way people's minds were structured and the way they structured their letters or the books of the Bible. But the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, shaping it according to John's personality. Uh, and, and, and it was written not only for the first ones who would sit or stand and hear this word read in church, but also to us as well. You've often heard that the Bible is God's love letter to you. But as Ricky reminded us last week in his excellent sermon from 2 John, perhaps it would be better to say that the Bible is God's truth letter 
to us that reveals the full extent of his love and that he sent his son Jesus to come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to live and die and rise from the dead so that the sins of all who believe will be forgiven. That's why John wrote his letter. He tells us so at the end of the text that we will read today. Well, this morning we will be reading from John 20, verses 24 to 31. And we're going to remember Thomas' skepticism about Jesus' bodily resurrection. And we'll be told John's purpose for writing his account, going all the way back to Jesus' origin, which really never was an origin. He's always existed. His ministry, his signs, his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's just an overview of the things that he would be saying. As you're going to see at the end of our text, John summed up his purpose very succinctly. He didn't whip off an email. He didn't tweet a clever line. He carefully crafted this account of Jesus' life to be written for others to hear. He did it in a specific way to communicate our need for him and his sufficiency to meet that need and every need that we have. So to, to set the context for today's passage, the first part of John 20 tells us of Jesus' resurrection appearances to Mary Magdalene and the disciples all occurring on Easter Sunday. Well, all the disciples except for Thomas, that is. That's where we pick up our story in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Isn't that really cool? The way that Jesus had nicknames for so many of them. Probably had nicknames for all of them. Just that camaraderie and companionship that he had with the disciples. So they were all there except for Thomas. So, verse 25, the other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his in his hands... The mark of the nails, and you can hear Thomas' voice rising. And place my finger into the mark of the nails and my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. or And yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Believe. Believe. Not like Tom Hanks and company tell us at Christmas every year. Believe. John wrote his account of Jesus' life and mission so that we may believe. Believe in what? Believe in whom? Well, before you can even ask the question, John answers it. That you may believe. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or God in the flesh. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, you may or may not know, I think I've mentioned this before, but, but John is the only one of the four Gospels that mentions Thomas' name. None of the others mention him except in the list of disciples. He's included with the other 11 when the names are being listed. <clears throat> Why did Thomas find space in John's writings? Well, clearly, Thomas' personality and actions and words served John's purposes in this gospel. And to say that, that Thomas and his activities and words suited John's purposes is to say that it suited the Holy Spirit's purposes. Thomas' skepticism in John 20 is where Thomas earned his reputation as doubting Thomas. Now, I said right at the beginning, you will recall Thomas, because we all know about Thomas, right? We all know that Thomas questioned whether Jesus had really, truly risen from the dead. So we begin in verse 24, where we're told that Thomas wasn't with the disciples at Jesus' initial resurrection appearance to the whole group, which occurred on Easter Sunday evening. When the other ten disciples told Thomas what had happened, he expressed what I think, if we'll really stop and put ourselves in Thomas' place, I think we will recognize that Thomas had an understandable skepticism. I mean, how would you have reacted if you had heard that news? Uh, look, guys, I, just, I, 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 know, I know you're all saying it, but I just don't know. If we were not so focused on doubting Thomas, we might label him Peter Jr. I mean, he made these bold statements. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will never believe. So just like the Lord does for us whenever we say never, you know, it's one of those things. You've seen that before in your life, I'm sure. Jesus gave Thomas the opportunity to do just that. Eight days after Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to the disciples while they were again in a room that was locked because of fear. Their association with Jesus had put them in danger and they were still very much afraid. And in the way that we count days, this would have been Monday, eight days after Sunday. But the way the Jews counted um, was that they would include both the first and the last days uh, in their reckoning. Which is why we can say Jesus was crucified on Friday. He rose from the dead on Sunday and he was in the grave three days and three nights. Any portion of the day is considered the entire day. 
So that's how this reckoning is. And it's the next Sunday night, which is again one of the primary reasons we worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday. Because this is when Jesus is making the appearances after his resurrection to his disciples. So on the next Sunday night, Jesus was suddenly in the middle of the disciples and put Thomas to the test. And then Jesus said, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Just think of the power in these words, especially given by the Savior to one who has followed him. Thomas responded by affirming Jesus as God and the Lord of his life. Do you think it is interesting that this account of Thomas' doubt is given just before the purpose statement of John 20, verses 30 and 31? Do you think there's... I do. I do. It's, it, it's pretty impressive. So here are three implications of the text in view of the larger message of John's gospel, beginning with, it is not your efforts that save you. It is only the work of Christ that secures eternal life for you. Good works won't do it. It's only the work of Christ that will secure eternal life for you. So every time we encounter Thomas in John's gospel, he was confused about Jesus' mission and purpose. In John 11, where Jesus told his disciples that they were going to Bethany after Lazarus had died. You remember the, the, the scenario. Word comes to Jesus, Lazarus is sick. In other words, please get over there and, and, and do something. You can heal him. I know you can. And Jesus said, hold your ground. So four days later, Jesus says, okay, let's go. And uh, they're like, well, Lord, he's resting. We've got word that he's asleep. That's, he's, he's doing better. Why don't we leave him alone? Jesus said, nope, he's dead. And I'm glad we didn't go when we did. Because for your sake, this, there's something going on here. I want, you to, I want you to understand. So let's go and be with him. And Thomas is like, all right, let's just all go. Why not? Why not? We'll all go and die with Lazarus. Now, maybe he said it that way, or maybe he said it with just purpose. Well, let's all go. If we die, we die. The reason Thomas expected to die was that the Jewish leaders were cross with Jesus. I didn't think about that use of that word until just now. They were cross with Jesus. And any time you were with Jesus anywhere near Jerusalem in those days, your life was in danger. Thomas knew how dangerous it was to be with Jesus, but he didn't understand the nature of the sacrificial death that Jesus was to die. So he had a limited view of his mission. Was Thomas' response to Jesus' travel arrangement, arrangements noble or sarcastic? I don't know. Either way, he missed the point. Not that the other disciples got the point. Not that we would have gotten the point. If we had been there amongst them. In John 14, after Jesus announced that he was going to return to his father. And the disciples knew where he was going. He, he had told them, and you know those verses in John 14, 1 to 3. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many rooms. And I, I, I wouldn't have told you if it's not so. And I'm going to come back and take, bring you with me so that you can 
be with me wherever I am. So he said at the very end of that, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas had a response to that. A response to that. Let's read Jesus' claim to be the only way to the Father. John 14, verses 4 to 7. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, and I imagine he was like, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's talking to Thomas saying, Thomas, you're looking at God. And Philip is going to say right after that, well, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And he's like, you don't get it, do you? If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I am God. And this is one of the reasons that John wrote his book, so that we would believe that Jesus is God. Even though Jesus spoke as clearly about the exclusivity of salvation in himself as he ever did, those closest to him did not fully understand what it meant. I'm going to talk just a few minutes a little bit more about tonight. But one of the things that I will say tonight in our panel, well, I think I'll say this if I get around to it, if it, the time is right, is that Christianity is an all-inclusive religion with an exclusive message. Anybody. All walls are broken down in Christ. Anybody. Does not matter. Race, socioeconomic, none of, none of that matters. All are invited, but it is an exclusive message. And you have to believe that if you're going to be a, a Christian. So even though Jesus spoke as clearly as ever about salvation is in me alone, Thomas spoke for the group when he confessed his ignorance. When Jesus later showed his scars to Thomas... He emphasized not only the importance of his resurrection, but the, the importance of his death. Now, we spend a lot of time saying, we've got, when you talk about Jesus' death, you have to remember the resurrection. In this case, Jesus said, all right, you've seen me in my resurrected body. You need to remember what this means when he showed him the scars and the wound in his side. What was the significance of Jesus' death? Our sins have separated us from God. We have this notion that the default position between me and God is I'm good as long as I don't mess this up really badly. No, the default position is we're in big trouble. And unless something is done about it, we will perish. Jesus did not come to right all the wrongs. Although he healed many people and he called out many injustices, he did not come merely to be an example for people to follow and live better lives. He came because we can never be good enough to live with God in eternity. Jesus was sent by his Father to do something about our sin problem. He died to take the punishment that our sins Deserve. He died in our place because he was the only eligible sacrifice for sins. What made him eligible? How did Jesus qualify to be that kind of substitute 
for us? Well, because he was both God and man. And he never sinned, perfect sacrifice. And John wants you to believe this. When you acknowledge your sin according to the gospel, then you also acknowledge your need for Jesus and his death in your place. John 3.18 tells us what is at stake. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Once again, that's the default position. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It is not your efforts that saved you. It is only the work of Christ that secures eternal life for you. Second, it is not your faithfulness that keeps you tethered to Christ. It is Jesus' faithfulness that keeps you united with him. This truth is seen all over Scripture. And I think we get a really good look at it with Thomas. What happened to Thomas? Why didn't he believe the assurances that, of the disciples that they had seen the risen Christ? Did he, did he lose his faith that he once possessed? Or did he never have faith to begin with? Was his confession of faith in Jesus as Lord, of, Lord and God a first conversion? A second conversion? Or was it a recommitment of the faith that he had so recently enjoyed? Since Jesus had breathed on the ten disciples the week before and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, did he need to do the same thing again for Thomas? Or was it, in fact, like we talked about a few weeks ago, more of a symbolic action prefiguring what was going to happen at Pentecost? Was Thomas in need of salvation at this point? Or was he included with the group because he was there in John 15 when Jesus told the disciples that they were clean. They were already clean because of the word he had spoken to them. If we must ask such questions, I would have answers. But I'm not sure that these are the best questions. They are the only questions that we tend to ask. But I'm not sure they're the best questions. May I offer a few thoughts without you questioning my theological integrity? The Bible was not written to answer our Enlightenment era 21st century questions. Although the Holy Spirit well knew of this age when he inspired the biblical authors to write as they did. In fact, when you think about them enormous population explosion from the beginning of the 19th century on. You think about comparing the number of people that have lived in the last 125 years to all the people that had lived before that. At least those who had grown up to be able to think about these kinds of things in, in, in a mature kind of a way. Then there are a lot of people that need to hear this word. But I think our questions are not being answered by Scripture as clearly as we want to because Scripture was not written to answer those specific questions. Does the Bible teach that believers are eternally secure? Yeah, I think it does very clearly. It's been sealed with the, with, with the Spirit. He is the non-refundable down payment, the earnest of our salvation 
If you walk away from God, the Spirit is in you, then the Spirit, you can't, that doesn't come back. So, yes, I think the Bible teaches eternal security. Does it teach that one can walk away from the faith, make shipwreck of the faith? Yes, it does. But, but does that mean that the person who walks away from Jesus once had true faith? Or did that person never have faith to begin with? If you must work it out, you're going to need to say one way or the other. But I wonder if in so doing, you're going to tie yourself up in theological knots, especially as you try to work out where your friends or family members are spiritually. When Jesus confronted Thomas about his unbelief, he issued a rather gentle rebuke, wouldn't you say? I think it's a really, it's gentle. In fact, look, I imagine the chosen is going to portray it this way when they get there several seasons down the road. Um, but I imagine Jesus is like, hey, Thomas, Thomas, weren't you the one? Here it is, man. Put your hand, put your finger there. Put your, and the rest of them are going to go, ah, ha, ha, ha. They're going to laugh. I, I think that's probably what happened. There's a little sense of humor. Any way you look at it, it's a rather gentle rebuke. Why do we have to be so serious about everything? That's what I want to know. For all practical purposes, you think about it, Thomas had walked away from the hope of eternal life that is in Jesus. Now, he didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside him like we do since Pentecost. But he had walked away from the hope of eternal life that is in Christ. I mean, he was trying to decide what he was going to do with his life. He was still hanging out with his friends. But in his mind, I can imagine Thomas thinking something like, well, that didn't work out. I mean, I thought so, but it just... Then out of nowhere, Jesus was standing right in front of him saying, Thomas, do not disbelieve. But believe, it is not you holding on to Jesus, it's him holding on to you. When you're thinking about, I don't know if I can believe this, but just listen to his words. Listen to his words to Thomas. Don't disbelieve, but believe. I know that a lot of us are grieving over loved ones and friends. Who seem to have given up on Jesus. And I don't know how to put our loved one's choices. Especially those that have been years away from the Lord. In the context of Thomas. But somehow these words seem significant to me. Thomas, don't disbelieve but believe. Now I wouldn't encourage you to say that to your son or daughter or wife or husband or friend or whoever. Who has walked away a long time ago. I wouldn't encourage you to say that. Know where you stand. Just love them. Just love them and pray this prayer. Lord, help them not to disbelieve, but to believe. But I want us to just stop right now and pray for those who are experiencing a crisis of faith as Thomas seems to have experienced before he saw the risen Christ. And I've asked one of our elders, Bert Wallace, if he would, to come and pray for us and to pray for all those um, who are not walking with the Lord and so dear to us. So, Professor Wallace, if you would...
you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. You are sovereign over all things. You are the potter, and we are clay in your hands. You do what you will. We have no say in the matter. We know that you call us, and we also know that you desire that all be saved. So today we pray for those that we love who seem to have walked away from you. Father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, brothers, sisters, friends, those that we love. Their faith seemed real to us. Now we are faced with apostasy that also seems real. But may it not be so. May you call them back. Whistle for them and gather them in. Redeem them, Father, that they may be with us again. Gather them in until your kingdom is full. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bart. Our last point, it is not your mission that matters. It is the furtherance of the gospel that you have been called to pursue. When Jesus commissioned the disciples in the verses immediately preceding this text, he told them that their mission was the gospel, the forgiveness of sins or the withholding of forgiveness based on the hearer's response to the gospel. At least that's the implication. When Jesus said, whoever's go out and proclaim the gospel, whoever sins, you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. He's essentially saying, you preach the message and their response is going to determine whether they are forgiven or not. You believe in Jesus, you believe in, if they believe in me, Jesus was saying, their sins will be forgiven. If not, that forgiveness will be withheld. If you are a follower of Christ, is there any mission while you are here on this earth that is more important to you than sharing the gospel? What social issues drive you regardless of which side you're on? I'm fully aware that I am not able to change your mind about these issues. But think about this. While the lines are being firmly drawn, very harshly established between the church and the world, there's another line that's being drawn inside the church. And it's like we're trying to draw this line between us and them. And, you, and you're thinking... What are you thinking? What are we thinking? What is wrong with us that we would say, okay, well, I'm going to draw this line inside the church, and my goal is to get the woke culture or the Republican Party, whatever. I want this group to agree with me that it's the other people in the church that's the problem. Really? Really? We're not smart enough to see what Satan is doing to us? We can understand why the world opposes our God-given, Jesus-directed, Holy Spirit-empowered mission to preach the gospel to all nations. 
But opposing each other for the sake of acceptance by those who don't know Christ. So that we might somehow, it is, is the price for getting people to listen to you share the gospel denigrating your brothers and sisters in Christ. At tonight's 6.30 Grace Matters session, it's a really important time. We're going to discuss not only the implications that the Equality Act will have on the church in America if it is passed and passed by legislatures and, and approved by the courts, we will contemplate also the threat of religious freedom or to religious freedom that is growing in our land on several fronts. Sometimes you're going to think I'm really nuts. You probably think I'm nuts already. But you really think I am when I say this. Sometimes I think the early church had an advantage over us in perspective and understanding of how life should be lived because it was born under the government structure of dictatorship. Rome determined how their daily lives would go. And if you didn't uh, 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 accept that particular uh, way of life that had been put on you, then you were in big trouble. We, though, are constantly struggling with our government founding documents that say we the people we have a role to say in how our nation goes and so it's very easy to conflate politics and religion should we lose the freedom to practice our faith according to our understanding of biblical truth we will eventually get back to the mission that Jesus gave us or the gospel will leave our shores quicker than we can imagine. I doubt any of us thinks that if the Lord tarries and we go on, it's another 2,000 years before Jesus returns. I doubt many of us think that this is going to be the center of the gospel in both belief and sending for all of that 2,000 years. I mean, there may be some that think that, but I doubt many of us think that but I also doubt any of us are aware including myself how quickly it may depart if that happens God is sovereign the gospel and the church will be just fine as we say here in the south but it is incumbent upon us to keep our focus on the mission that God has given us. It is true. Our pastor in the mountains used to say. That in the last days. The love of many will grow cold. God has told us that's the case. It will happen. But it does not have to happen to us. We don't have to go down that road. Here is good news. It is not your efforts that save you. It is only the work of Christ that secures eternal life for you. It is not your faithfulness that keeps you tethered to Christ. It is Jesus' faithfulness that keeps you united with Him. Here's the challenge. It's not your mission, really our mission, that matters. Like Thomas. All right, well, let's just all go die. You know, 
It's not your mission that matters. It's the furtherance of the gospel that we have all been called to pursue. We have all been called to propagate, to share. So as we close, would you join me as I pray a prayer from John Bailey's prayer book titled, A Diary of Private Prayer. I'm grateful that these prayers of this early 20th century Scottish theologian have been published to assist us as we pray. This is from the journal that Andrew Peterson, those of you that have the book of liturgies, Every Moment Holy, in the introduction, Andrew Peterson references this book as having made such an impact on his life. I'm going to ask you to read along silently. Don't read out loud. But read along silently as I go through this prayer. Then I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I will read it again as we pray together. I bless you, most holy God, for your unfathomable love. Through that love, you enable the Holy Spirit to meet with my spirit so that I, a weak and wandering mortal, can have ready access to your heart, the heart of the one who moves the stars. O Holy One, let the fire of your love enter my heart and burn up this tangled mess of meanness and hypocrisy and make my heart like the heart of a little child. Give me grace, O oh God, to pray now with a pure and sincere desire for all those I will meet today. Let me now remember my friends with love and my adversaries with forgiveness and trusting them all as I now entrust my own soul and body to your protecting care through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now would you close your eyes and I will pray this for us together. I bless you, most holy God, for your unfathomable love. Through that love, you enable the Holy Spirit to meet with my spirit so that I, a weak and wandering mortal, can have ready access to your heart. The heart of the one who moves the stars. O Holy One, let the fire of your love enter my heart and burn up this tangled mess of meanness and hypocrisy. And make my heart like the heart of a little child. Give me grace, O oh God, to pray now with a pure and sincere desire for all those I will meet today. Let me now remember my friends with love and my adversaries with forgiveness. Entrusting them all as I now entrust my own soul and body to your protecting care. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Would you please stand for the benediction. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, 
go to graceccnc.org.